Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Maple products are a unique phenomenon with a rich history. The sweet sap of the sugar maple was known and valued by the native peoples of eastern North America long before the arrival of European settlers. An Iroquois legend tells of the piercing of the bark of a maple and the use of the sweet water to cook venison, a happy accident which established the culinary tradition of maple-cured meats. French settlers probably learned from the Indians how to tap trees to obtain sap and how to boil it to reduce it to sweet syrup or sugar slabs to be stored for later use. The Ojibwa called the sugaring off period the Maple Moon or Sugar Month. The tradition of sugaring off became established in communities in the deciduous forests of North America and has survived to the present time. various sap gathering methods. Traditional bucket collection, although still used throughout the maple belt, is being replaced by a vacuum tubing system that reduces labor and creates a more sanitary environment for collection. Once the maple sap is collected, it is evaporated into syrup. The dilute raw material is reduced to remove excess water. Nothing is added. It takes approximately 30 to 45 liters or 8 to 12 gallons of maple sap to produce 1 liter or 2 US pints of pure maple syrup. Water can be removed from sap by using various systems from wood-fired evaporators to reverse osmosis systems that separate water from the sugar molecules at high pressure. However, the sugar house remains the focal point of maple syrup production. Each sugar maker has one of his own. Maple syrup is a pure natural sweetener, the only other liquid natural sweetener being honey. Maple syrup has an abundance of trace minerals that are essential to good nutrition. Potassium, magnesium, phosphorus, manganese, iron, zinc, copper and tin, as well as calcium in concentrations 15 times higher than honey. It contains only one-tenth as much sodium as honey, an important consideration for those on a salt-restricted diet. In Canada and the United States, maple syrup is most often eaten with waffles, pancakes, and French toast. It is sometimes used as an ingredient in baking, the making of candy, preparing desserts, or as a sugar source and flavoring agent in making beer.
traditional sugar house and the family operation, so evocative of Canada's pioneer past, will remain. For now, the Canadian maple industry has succeeded in making it a modern food industry, targeting the world's finest palates. This delicious treat, maple taffy, is made by pouring hot syrup boiled to 114 degrees centigrade or 238 Fahrenheit and poured on clean snow where it is quickly cooled. As it starts to solidify, it is twirled on wooden paddles. It is absolutely delicious. Annual community festivities, including maple suppers featuring the New Year's syrup, Pancakes and waffles, sausage and bacon have traditionally centered around the sugaring season and continue to this day, as can be seen here in Earltown, Nova Scotia. This image shows the different grades of maple syrup, from light amber with a delicate maple flavor on the left to the darkest with the strongest maple bouquet at the right. The lightest is considered the best grade and is not always available in each year's production. Next time you enjoy maple syrup on your pancakes, you'll be able to reflect on the long history of this natural treat. But be warned, don't eat too much. Welcome back to the Wildestead. We are going to take a look at making maple syrup every single step, from spile or tap selection to tapping the tree, all the way through to finishing and bottling the maple syrup. When it comes to selecting your spiles, it really comes down to personal preference. Here we prefer to use stainless steel spiles. And the reason for that is they are just much easier to clean and they last a long time. The plastic spiles can harbor all kinds of bacteria and they tend to bend and break after a year or two's use. You can see just how much gunk can build up on the plastic spiles. And what can happen is when you tap your trees, if you don't have these completely cleaned out, the bacteria can cause the tree to begin to heal its wound up before you want it to. You want to be collecting sap as long as possible, and if the tree heals up its wound, it's going to stop producing sap out of that hole. As far as tree types go, any member of the maple family can be tapped. This goes for red maples, silver maples, Manitoba maples, or box elder, and the most preferred tree, the sugar maple. Sugar maples, you can usually look at getting a ratio of 40 to 1, so 40 liters of sap will produce 1 liter of syrup. Other trees in the maple family can get as high as 60 to 1, even 80 to 1 in some cases. Manitoba maple has the highest ratio of sap to syrup, so it kind of falls pretty low on the priority scale of maple trees to tap. As far as tree size goes, you don't really want to be tapping trees that are much smaller than 12 inches in diameter. If you want to get really technical about it, you can pick up a diameter at breast height measuring tape. Basically what this is, is you measure the tree at the height of your chest, and what you will see on the tape is the, the diameter of the tree, not the circumference. 
Different sized trees are going to be able to accept a different number of taps. So a 12 to 20 inch tree, you're going to be putting one tap in the tree. 20 to 27 inches, you can put up to two taps in the tree. And anything over 27 inches, you can put three taps. Tapping the tree. This is the most exciting part. Most spiles are going to come in sizes of 5 sixteenths or 7 sixteenths of an inch. So you're going to have to pick a drill bit that is going to reflect the size of your taps. This is the south side of the tree. Generally that's the side you want to tap, the side that gets the most sun. It's just going to warm up the quickest and thaw out the quickest. Got a little bit of tape on my drill bit here and that is just to give me an indication of the depth that I'm drilling. I only want to go about two inches or so. I don't want to go too much deeper than that. Drill on a little bit of an upward angle. The sap is flowing. Look at how much, it's just gushing out of there. Excellent. Put your spile in, just until it's set. The hammer will bounce off when you're deep enough. Excellent. Traditional maple syrup buckets are generally a cone shape and made out of metal. The cone shape definitely does help the bucket sit up against the tree a little nicer, less chance of it falling off, and it also makes it easier to get frozen sap out because of the conical shape. You do not need any special buckets, really, to, to collect your sap. One thing you do want to make sure of, though, is that you're looking at HDPE number two food grade plastic. We use these Canadian tire buckets and we also use Home Depot buckets that both have that symbol. Now, sap doesn't flow all the time at this time of year. Certain conditions are needed. So what you need is above freezing daytime temperatures and below freezing nighttime temperatures. And the bigger the gap between the two, the heavier flow you can usually expect. If you're a small-scale syrup producer like we are, or just producing in your backyard, you're going to have to wait until you have collected enough sap in order to start boiling. Every day, when the conditions are right, I come out for a hike in the sugar bush, and I collect the sap. And I just go out for a hike, collect it in a five-gallon bucket, I just keep saving enough until I have enough to boil. So what I have here is just a five gallon pail with a hole cut in the lid. Filter funnel sits right inside like that. I like to filter my sap as soon as I get it back to the house and store it in five gallon buckets. Filtering your sap is just going to get any sticks or bugs or anything like that out of it before you store it 
so that when it comes time to boil, you're just pouring the sap straight into your evaporator. Once you've saved up enough sap to start boiling, it's time to fire up your evaporator. Now your evaporator can really be anything depending on the amount of syrup you plan to make. It could be as simple as a turkey fryer, uh, it could be a pot on top of a fire. In our case, we built a backyard sap evaporator out of an old filing cabinet and we lovingly refer to it as the saporator. As far as your initial sap boiling goes, you're going to get your fire nice and hot. Preferably, you will use some shallow, rectangular-shaped vessels to boil in. Stainless steel would be the preferred metal to use. Initially, you're just going to allow your sap to heat up and allow it to come to a roaring boil. You may want to keep a separate container of sap just close to your fire or on top of a stove or something like that just to preheat the sap so that you're not shocking or losing your boil when you pour more sap into your boiling vessels, into your evaporator. Now in our case, we have three five gallon or 25 liter stainless steel chafing trays that we use. And we move sap from the front to the back of the evaporator, moving it through the trays the back of the evaporator is much hotter than the front, naturally, because the heat is traveling towards the back to leave out through the chimney. I'm not going to bore you with too much of this boiling part. Uh, you're basically just sitting there, literally watching water boil. Once you have reached what we like to refer to as the near-up stage, where the sap is about halfway to becoming syrup, you're going to want to remove it and you're going to want to filter it. And so here we're using a felt filter which is designed specifically for filtering maple syrup and it does a great job of removing debris, nitre, and ash. The finishing stages of your syrup are where things become a little bit more critical. You really have to keep an eye on things. There's a very, very easy chance of burning your syrup. So like I said, be sure to keep a close eye on it. Things are going to happen very, very quickly at this point. We've reached the point that I am comfortable with taking this to in this big pot. This is a small amount of syrup. So I'm going to take it inside and finish it up. The goal here is going to be heating it up in a much more controlled environment. And you are looking to reach the final temperature of 219 degrees Fahrenheit. And now we are going to filter the syrup one last time. This last filtering isn't entirely necessary, but if you want crystal clear syrup or you plan to sell your maple syrup, you may want to do this. Nitre, or sugar sand, forms anytime your syrup is heated up above 195 degrees Fahrenheit. For this stage, we're using cone-shaped oil filters, cooking oil filters. We have found these to be the best. They work best for us. Other option that you could use would be cone-shaped coffee filters. The only downfall is that the coffee filters may clog up a little bit quicker with the nitre. Now it's time to bottle the syrup. Very important, keep your temperature between 180 and 190 degrees Fahrenheit. Anything above 195 degrees Fahrenheit is going to again create nitre. You have a few different options to bottle your maple syrup. 
You can bottle it in these fancy little maple syrup jars if you intend to sell it. And the process is quite simple. Keeping the temperature of your syrup above 180 degrees Fahrenheit, fill your jars. And then tighten the lid. You'll feel it click. You'll feel the lid click when it's on there tight. Once the lid is on tight, lay the jar down on its side. This will help sterilize the lid. Now you can move on to your next jar. If you'd like, you can also use mason jars, and the process is the same. Fill your jar with hot syrup above 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Using a new lid, set the lid on the jar, take your screw band and attach it just like you would if you were water bathing or canning. Flip the jar upside down. Again, this is to sterilize the lid. At this point, your jar should seal itself. You do also have the option to water bath these if you would like to. Submerge the jars in boiling water for 15 minutes if you would prefer to go that route. We find it's not really necessary. Now your maple syrup is shelf stable. And that, my friends, is how you make pure Canadian gold. So we're out here today at the Hiawatha First Nations Reservation with my good friend Caleb Musgrave and uh, so today we're um, we're maybe ma making maple sugar, right? We are That's indeed. Our process, but we're going to learn some of the old ways, some of the traditional Definitely. ways. Definitely. So maybe Caleb, we could start with um, like today we think of maple syrup, we and, and pancakes, and, yeah, and uh, <laughs> people going to the sugar shanties. But back in pre-European. Contact days, they didn't make maple syrup, did they? No. Well, we would make the syrup and then go a little further. It's a, it was like a stopping point to get to the next part. And people would take like a little bit of hot syrup and put it on the snow and make taffy, like everybody does nowadays. So good. But then we would take it to the next step, and that was sugar. Sugar. Okay. So we're going to go about the woodlot here. We're going to tap a few trees and. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be doing it the traditional way, and yes, sir. You also are, are pretty fluent in your in, in your language, so maybe yeah. as we're going about, you can. I can share some words that I remember. Perfect, that would be <laughs> great, and, uh, uh, and hopefully I can remember them. But anyway, at least we'll get an introduction to them for sure. Anyway, shall we go for a walk? Heck yeah, let's go for it. Okay, pretty neat job there, Caleb. You got this uh, nice basket made. In What's the Anishinaabe word uh, for this? Biscuitanagan, and it's talking about how it's a folded dish. Now, this is a real small one, but the bark we had wasn't primo. So usually the sap buckets would be about that wide, that long, and about that deep. But we were, we're working with what we got here. Sadly, we're not in good birch country anymore. 
And and so when when we get around to the process of, of uh, tapping the tree, these baskets, the bigger ones, they would just sit on the ground. Yep. Yeah. And and that's kind of the the funny reality is there's there's always like things that make certain techniques better and make certain techniques worse. Uh, there's always a pro and a con to everything. And I find the number one con with these is that they're on the ground and every animal knows they're there. <laughs> the modern sap buckets with a lid on them. Uh, the only time I've ever actually had to really deal with animals is with these. And the one time I came out to the sugar bush real early and there was a good size sap bucket, not as big as like our modern two gallon ones, right. but about a gallon, gallon and a half. And there was a deer drinking out of it. <laughs> sees me, turns around, and poops right into the sap bucket Perfect. and trots away. Okay. And that didn't get boiled, did it? No, that bucket no. got dumped and we washed it out thoroughly. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Okay. So uh, what are you uh, what are you working on right now? So I'm making our tap, our spile. Ojikwan is one way of saying it. And uh, what it's made out of is just a piece of white cedar. I'm just smoothing it down, getting rid of any burls or any not burls, but curls or twists or uh, slivers that might make it less hydrodynamic or aquadynamic we're going to have this tapped into this maple tree right above a root somewhere around here and i like to start long because we don't know where the sap bucket's going to lay flat yet oh, I see. if you made these all pre-cut and you get there and your bucket's over here and your spile's only this long that's not yeah, really helping that's not you gonna happen. so i like to start long and then once we know where the bucket can lay flat i'll trim it off to that length and what this is going to do is we're going to take this knife finish smoothing it down i'm going to sheath it eventually and then take my crooked knife and you don't have to do this but it's something that I've kind of gotten keen on the last couple of years is just take the outer radius of the curve and we're just gonna carve a very slight trough. It doesn't have to be very deep. It's just something where the sap can kind of conglomerate in one spot and then drip off a lot easier. Sure. Not like a big, you can do this with like a, a lot of people when they're trying to do old school tapping, if they don't know the hatchet tap method and they're using a drill, they'll just get bits, pieces of uh, spruce, yeah. or not spruce, sorry, sumac bore the hole out of the pith and then they'll just put it in there and they got that trough that actually drains it out. This is similar, but it's not as aggressive. You're not trying to force the liquid. You're just kind of giving it a good spot that it wants to go. Right. And so I feel like we're going to be able to tap from about there into this spot here for the bucket. I'm going to check there. That looks good. Yeah, that's going to definitely reach. I can. I know a little off topic, Caleb. Can mm -hmm. just have a look at your crooked knife? Yeah, yeah. That, I, I've got a few crooked knives myself, but that guy's a dandy. That's a beautiful one. So was that, uh, did you mention sometimes a fellow gifted this to you? My friend Nick Dillingham gifted that to me after uh, I sent him some stuff uh, to help him out. He sent that to me as a gift. It was really, really kind of him. Uh, Nick Dillingham, he's a basket maker down in Michigan area. He's a very, very good friend, an amazing mentor to me with a lot of things regarding basketry and woodwork in general. The fit, the fit of that yeah. tool. That, that I love old tools, and uh, the fit of that is just absolutely amazing. It's a great one, isn't yeah. it? I try to, I try to emulate his style often when I'm making crooked knives myself, and I haven't got to his level in handles. Yeah, very good. Thank you. No worries. So I'm just going to trim off this end to the uh, to be our spot to actually go in. So there's a few ways you can do it. Cedar, luckily, is a very easy wood to work. Your canoe builder, you know this. Yeah, I don't have to explain it to you. A bit with cedar, but we just got to. Do a couple of notches here. Don't need a saw at all to do this kind of work. Set my knife down, pops off. And it's rough, but that's where I gotta trim it narrow anyways, because it's gotta fit inside where that chisel is gonna go. This is a piece of deer antler that I cut up as our tapping wedge. Okay. Which is gonna make our 
hole, but it's also going to make uh, to set the the spile, and then it's going to make a few notches to gather the sap. And I understand your dog ate your last one. Yep, <laughs> I just I had to make that one just this morning because my dog got a hold of my antler one that I left out on the table last night. Good job, both you and the dog. Yeah. yeah. She's usually a good girl, but that time she was a bit of a bad girl. All right. So that's the general shape, roughly. It's going to sit in. I'm not going to do too many modifications beyond this. I may just make this end a little bit deeper. I'm going to set aside all the other tools. Toss my cedar down there. Yeah, I'm going to need that. And we got, you, you grabbed me a little wooden mount a moment ago. So I've cleaned off this bark a little bit just so I have a, a good workspace. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and take my chisel into that spot. This is just a piece of deer antler. I'm going to set it there. I'm going to grab that mallet. I don't want to go too deep in here. Let's see if that works. That should. Needs a little bit more depth. Yep, that'll work. Okay, I'm gonna take that out of the way so I don't bash it. What I'm gonna do now is I'm just gonna take, this could be a flake of stone, but I'm just gonna use my knife because I have it here. You wanna see some sap dripping out of there. I'm just going to clean that area up. And I'm going to go back to using my chisel and I'm going to cause some slashes. So this is referred to as hatchet tapping uh, because when we got steel tomahawks and hatchets, we just did it with an, with an axe. We didn't need to use antler chisels anymore. But it's the exact same technique. I'm going to take my chisel. I'm going to make these slashes that come down and meet in this area so it drips down and then goes down the spile. <laughs> line before but someone said what how did these your your ancestors Caleb uh, get by with these stone age tools actually mm -hmm. and and the one comment was the, the, the best tool they had was patience I love that philosophy I really do so I've kind of scored it once I'm seeing a little bit of sap coming up but I haven't gotten through all the uh, xylem and other inner bark so now I've got a line I'm gonna come back and just kind of pop it in a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. And the way the chisel goes in is to cause kind of a troughing effect. I don't just want to have a 90 degree cut because then it's just going to run down the tree. Oh, I want so to have kind of an angle. Right, so it put, makes it a little V yeah, in there. Exactly. Like its own little trough. Exactly. So I'm just going to kind of drag my chisel through. Just trying to make sure everything's kind of clear of any little base of the bark. And the beautiful thing, there's, again, I was talking about the pros and cons of tapping and different ways that people tap. We found a tree, this is when I was in high school, back at the end of the property where my father took me and he showed me where his grandfather... Uh, use modern day steel spiles mm -hmm. or tin spiles and then on the other side of the tree he showed me these marks that were in the bark from where his great-grandfather had hatchet tapped with an axe Perfect. Wow. and about 10 years later we had to cut that tree down because it had gotten killed by uh, 
who knows what. There's a lot of different diseases that hit sugar maples. Mm -hmm. And when we cut it down, you could find the holes from every single one of those metal spiles. Yeah. But you could not see Sorry. real en evidence of this. We could see it in the bark, and there'd be like a very faint line, but it wasn't a hole bored out. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're only nicking right. that inner bark. We're not going all the way through it. And, and so it continues to grow. Is that, um, like from my background uh, in arboriculture, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's not a healing organism. It's a compartmentalizing organism. Yep. So this small wound that you've made, um, within two years, it'll box itself completely off. Yep. So pathogens, insects aren't yep. going to be able to penetrate that. It's pretty, pretty awesome. It's an amazing tree. So now we just put our tap in. I'm going to tap it very gently with the antler. I should lock it into place, and you already see it's starting to run down that trough. <laughs> Too many. Once in a while, a breeze, but to keep that water, that sap boiling hard, we gotta keep fanning the fires. And so you can always just do that with like a, a Rubbermaid lid if you're in the modern day and stuff. But for the old days, we either had birch bark fans or split cedar fans. And they're kind of a, a fun little just fireside project to work on. We're gonna actually carve a handle starting here down to here. And this is going to become the feathers of the fan. We're going to actually split it by the growth ring. Okay. And then we're going to bend them and actually interlock them into a fan that we can blow wind into the fire. Yeah. So I'm just going to narrow them a little bit. Clean off all those little splinters. Just and watching what? you draw the wood through the holding the tools. Oh, yeah. And drawing the wood. Like that. I learned that the hard way when I was first started building birch bark canoes, I wanted to run it like a modern yep. tool. You're working on an 18 or a 20-foot gunnel. <laughs> no, just hold them. Yeah, your knife will just be doing this the whole time. Pull the material through the... Pull the wood through the tool. Definitely. So I'm doing, that feels good in the hand. And I'm going to do is I'm going to make my hinge. Well, I'm going to do the hinge last. I'm going to make my locks up here first. And so the lock is that the fans can spread, the feathers can spread out. 
because I don't mind the flavor of cedar and the syrup. I'm just gonna warm up the wood, the sap. Especially that joint. Now, some folks that make these, they'll stop at four. Others will go to like 16 or 18 feathers. I usually end up around six with my luck and the quality of wood that I've got to play with. Right there, wants to bend off the wrong way. Just about uh, the same process to make the stem for your canoe build. Almost the same, yeah. And very similar to, in a lot of ways, making your sheathing to a degree. And we often use these fans with our students to practice before they start working on canoes with us. Learning how to correct your splits by bending the wood in the right way and all that. If we're lucky, we might get eight. I'm not that bold to say we will. We may just be sticking with four feathers today. She's being very finicky with her grain. So, so um, that, that's pretty neat, Caleb. That's uh, that's the same technique as I mentioned. We we use for splitting the mm -hmm. stem so we can bend the delamination, yeah. <clears throat> bend the shape of the canoes we build. And if the grain was straighter, you're saying you'd split this down maybe to into eight or six. Yeah, to eight yeah. You have I, a fan this wide. Yeah, the, and you can make them a lot longer. I've seen ones that people have set up where they could be sitting on this log further back and be fanning the fire out of the heat of the fire, and so they can actually the keep it going. Out of yeah. the smoke, yeah, perfect. And there's, some of them can get up to 16 blades or 16 feathers. My best to date was 10. I couldn't get past 12. Yeah. Every time I try to get to the 12, I would split the 11th and the 12th right off. That would be a good uh, way to teach uh, students um, that want to build a birch bark canoe yep. how to actually split the cedar. 
Definitely. But it's not the perfect piece, that's for no. sure. But you did a pretty good job. Yeah. And it's functional. Oh, yeah. It's good. Yeah, we'll use that for the rest of the season and probably use it as kindling by the end of it. <laughs> Magwitch. No worries. Well, we've got our trees tapped. Mm -hmm. We've got sap brought in. We've got it boiling down here. We've we do. got some we're ready to make sugar out of. Yep. The question is, how did you know? How did you know when to start? Really good question. So we can approach this from a few different directions. We'll start off with the simplest answer, and that is when the sap is ready. So you can always go and just tap a tree and check it. If it's not running yet, keep an eye on it until it starts to run. That's one way to do it. Uh, but if you want to actually be successful and you want to be able to do this consistently again and again and not have it feel like just guesswork, there are certain signs that happen during the seasons. In Anishinaabegaki, in Ojibwe territory, we observe the landscape to tell us almost everything throughout our calendar year. And the beauty of that is it can shift. Like one year the raspberries are ripe at this time, and it might be ras the raspberries might be ripe right. at a later time, but they're ripe when they're supposed to be ripe. And it's kind of a more poetic way to look at the world. The first month that we just passed through, the last month that we just passed through in our calendar year is often referred to as on deck Jesus or the crow moon. Okay. And what that is referring to is in this part of the, of the country, crows are mostly grain eaters. They, they'll go after carrion just like any other corvid, like a raven or a jay, but they really like their grains. They like their corn, they like their millet, they like their wheat and barley, especially corn. And so they'll go further south when the heavy snow comes and they'll stay south in Indiana, southern Pennsylvania, where there's still a little bit of dusting of snow, but they can find some food. And even if there is the option for going for carrying, they don't have to worry about deep snow they've got to sift through to find that animal. Right. And that's the time of year that we get the ravens down here. The ravens will migrate south and take over this area. You'll hear their quirks and plonks and all their noises here. But then at some point, the crows show back up, and they'll come in droves. They're like You'll see fields of 10, 20, 30 crows in the fields. And right around that time is when the the sap is going to start getting ready. Not necessarily that day. It's usually about a week. But what's going to happen is you're going to notice that you're going to be getting cold nights, warm days. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want for sap to run. Mm -hmm. And it'll be really cold, and then maybe you'll have like a cool day or two when those crows show up. And when those crows show up, it's like your last warning from all of nature saying, hey, if you have not got your sap buckets ready and you don't have your collagens ready, do it right now. You've got a week. So when the crows show up, you start getting the baskets out. Yeah, we start washing baskets, out our cauldrons, getting everything ready to go. Making your taps, yep. getting everything ready. Yep. Cool. And then we go out and start, start scouting our trees. And that's where another step can come. Is let's, let's go back to 1600s or even earlier than that, pre-contact. Let's say we've been driven out of this territory due to conflict. Or we had to go into a new territory. You may not know where a sugar bush is. When you know the trees, and you know this from your background in arborist work, certain trees like to live around each other. Mm -hmm. Hemlocks and sugar maple really, really dig each other. Coexist. Yeah. And so what we can do is get up onto these ridges and drumlins and look for the dark hemlock trees, and we know we're chances are going to find some sugar maples. Right. So that's another step of being able to figure out the landscape and helping us find our homeland for it, for the sugar bush. And then there's these other steps that come in. One of the names for hemlock tree in the Anishinaabemowin language is Gagog and Nish. And it's talking about it's a couple of different translations people have, but the one I really dig is the tree you find the porcupines in. And that's a... Yeah. I would say about 60% of the dens that I find in Ontario that are porcupine dens, 60% of them are in hemlock hollows. Mm -hmm. They make dens in there, and then just before the sugar bush, they'll climb up 
and they'll start eating the tips off the needles because there's medicines in there that help them regulate their sugar intake mm -hmm. so they don't get too sick on the maple sugar. And then they go after the maple trees. Mm -hmm. And so as Anishinaabek, we come out here, pre-contact, early contact, a couple hundred years after post-contact, there's arguments about which gender ran the sugar bush or which sex ran the sugar bush. And I lean towards believing that it may have been the men, not for any patriarchal reason in particular other than the fact that when you look at winter life in Nishnabic culture, early contact, post-contact, pre-contact, you see those seasonal shifts where we have to have certain roles fulfilled and the women will be making nets for the sucker runs, for the walleye runs, everything that's going to be coming after white fish, everything that comes after the sugar. It takes about 10,000 to 30,000 dog bane stocks to make one fishing net. That's a lot of work. And I've made some cordage with yeah. some bane. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a, a lot, lot of work. You do not have the time to go out and be checking sap buckets. Right. And you may have a kid on your hip you've got to be dealing with. So what we would often do from the theories and from the observations we made in looking at Jesuit journals from the Jesuit relations and everything else. And so the women are too busy with these kids and getting these nets made and everything else. And then you have like the elderly, the really young kids. I believe the camps were run by the men and they would bring the kids with them, the younger, the teenagers, the young adults, and they would work in the sugar bush. And they would often leave the food behind for those who were left behind. They would leave all their other gear that wasn't sugaring equipment. So you get to this sugar bush and there's porcupines in, they've been attacking your maple trees, they're competing with you for that maple sugar. Right. And so you're gonna hunt them. You left all your other tools behind, you didn't bring anything. You can kill a porcupine with just throwing a stick up in the tree and knocking it out of those tree branches. Nine times out of 10 when they hit the ground, their neck breaks. The other time you gotta club them again. And porcupine, there, there's a lot of good benefit to them. You, you take that first boil of sap, you throw the porcupine meat in there with it and cook that, and you leave that off to the side, and that's your meals for the rest of the two to four, maybe five weeks you may be on that sugar bush. And there's even, like, I've heard conversations, I don't know what the evidence of this is, you may have, have an observation of it, of quill work was often looked at as a man's craft and a man's art. Bead work was a woman's craft and woman's art. Interesting. Who has all the porcupine meat? Therefore, who has all the quills? Those men. So they're making these beautiful pieces to give back to their wives and back to their family members that they've missed That's an over that month. Interesting theory. Sad and, we've lost so much, right? right? Because... Uh, yeah, all but for a written language, there'd be so much more knowledge, would yeah. there not? And so, we know that after contact, the women took a much larger role in the sugar bush because we had these big kettles, we had access to metal equipment that would help with that, all these different things that came along that helped make the work easier and the whole community could be there right. in the sugar bush. Now we could buy our nets or trade for net material instead of having to make all the cord all that kind of aspects that made it change and there was a shift and whether it's a good or a bad shift i have no opinion on i think it's just a shift um personally i don't think men have to be the only ones making maple sugar anyone can make maple sugar um my my aunties were the ones that taught me these things right so i'm never going to be like the guy this is a man's job no it's everybody's job tradition so it was also i've, I've under or as i understand it was a, a celebratory time of year yeah. right like families would disperse in the winter from mm -hmm. the larger villages and go off in their family units or extended families to hunt. Yeah. Sugaring time came along, they'd all come back and they'd find out who was born, who died. <laughs> yep. And it was a celebratory yeah. time, was it not? It, it was, I've had these conversations with a lot of folks um, in a lot of different Anishinaabe communities. Majority of us agree that this is kind of our New Year's. 
This is like our New Year's Eve or New Year's week or month where life is coming back. This time of year is called Ziguan in our language, and it's talking about that sap flowing up and bringing life back into the trees and the plants. This is when birds are mating mm -hmm. and making eggs and laying those eggs and hatching those eggs and bringing new life in the world. This is when you see the bear cubs coming out of their dens of their mothers, new life coming back into the world. Right. Why do we celebrate new life back at the coldest, darkest time of the year? We would celebrate it now. Right now, yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that this is when we would come back together and run those big sugar camps and, and really enjoy life, really enjoy life. So from my research, Caleb, looking at, um, again, European contacts taking place and mm -hmm. uh, trade goods that, that natives most sought after, um, people would think they're traps and guns, but my research would indicate the number one trade item was fabric, yep. uh, wool, yep. uh, broadcloth, uh, linen. But then the next most popular would have been copper copper pots yeah kettles because definitely so you're holding a traditional clay pot that they had before cast iron yes. copper pots and this one it broke last year on you were saying yeah. but too much craftsmanship goes into that to throw that away that's a <laughs> that's a gem this was a this is a beautiful piece made by tashi smoke from all uh from aquasasne apologies tashi if i got the location wrong but she's holding the shone uh, and this was one of her beautiful pieces. And sadly, we got two seasons of boiling out of it, which oddly enough is about the amount of time you'd expect in the clay pot to last mm -hmm. out in the land. Uh, it was about two seasons of boiling, two years of boiling. And then last year when we got ready to use it, I had it on the deck. We had a cold shock happen on the bottom and there was warm sun on the top and it just split right down the middle like that, yeah. which is the reality with clay pots. What I find fascinating is when you talk about sugar bush and you talk about when the, how the natives sugared, a lot of people, when you go to outdoor ed centers or to sugar shacks, things like that that are doing it, they get a hollow log, they fill it full of sap, and they pour a bunch of hot rocks in it, and it becomes this sludge. The great myth. The great myth. The great, great, great myth. Um, just to clarify for everybody what's watching, you can do these tests yourself. We've done it with pH strips multiple times. No matter how smooth your rocks are, no matter how well you wash them, no matter how well you try to do everything you can to dust off every bit of ash, ash is going to get into that sap. And if you think about it, for sugar maple, it's like a 40 to 1 of sap to syrup for, per, for, per, for volume. Red maple, it can be up to 65 to 1. Mm -hmm. Box elder, it can be 70 to 1. So depending on what kind of maples you're getting, that's a lot of sap that's getting concentrated down. And every single boil with those hot rocks is carrying in ash. We've done these tests again and again and again. Every couple of years we do, we might actually do it again this year if I want to sacrifice some of my beautiful sap where we do a pH strip at the end of it, and you're looking at like an 8 yeah. on the scale. That's Almost just below bleach. Toxic. It is very toxic. Right. And so when you come, when you say those facts, a lot of people say like, oh, so they must have just heated up the sap and drank the sap. And Europeans must have introduced them to making syrup and sugar. No. We've had these things called clay pots for 5,000 years in the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, these things work really well. And this is a small one. And we've been able to make liter after liter after liter of syrup out of this pot. Right. When you look at the old school pots, they could be three to four times this size. And we would have many of them. And yeah, they're fragile. They break. You know what the beautiful thing about being an indigenous person on the land is in the old days? Make, you know how to make them. Make a new one. Yeah. <laughs> so these are very easy to replace when you know what you're doing. I am not a good potter. I'm a very, very poor potter. 
I can make a nice looking pot, but my temper will be wrong. My firing will be wrong. Something will be wrong. So I often go to those experts like Tashi who made this beautiful, beautiful pot, which I hope to replace soon and have this just as a centerpiece in my home and I have the other one to be used out here again. The beautiful thing about this, the clay pots with sugaring is we will just put a few coals on and then forget about it for like an hour. And then we'll put some more coals on, forget about it for an hour. And because of how coarse, I'm going to let the microphone hear this, you can kind of hear how coarse the inside is, very raspy. Mm-hmm. When it's being fired, it makes these sharp pores, not too dissimilar to cast iron, mm-hmm. but a little bit sharper. The bubbles burst and they leave those jagged ceramic edges. And when the boiling starts to happen and it starts to overboil, the bubbles burst on that and fall back inside themselves. And you'll have this lift and drop and lift and drop. And the pores are also porous. So some of the sap will come through, get superheated and sent back in by the fire. Perfect. And so you actually have it stirring itself. On many occasions, we've left it between three stones on some coals for the whole day while we're doing all of our other boiling and doing demos and doing all that stuff we do. And we come back and there's a pot of sugar already made for us. Perfect. Because it stirred itself and granulated itself. These things are the original crock pot. Perfect. And I love them. So, so back to um, the, the preservation. Obviously, you didn't have glass jars. You weren't going to put them in... Yeah. Plastic. No. Um, so sugar was the way. You'd enjoy the syrup. Yeah, you'd, for sure. You'd enjoy the toffee on the snow. Yes. But now let's get down to a uh, discussion on on how we're taking this rendered down. Um, it, it's it's almost syrup now. Yeah. We're going to make sugar out yeah. of it. Yeah, we're so making sugar where, where, today. Where are we at now? So when you go from sap to syrup, you're evaporating all the water off. And then when you're getting to sugaring, you're still evaporating that water off. But you have to do it at a lower heat at a more controlled rate. And that's, again, why those clay pots are so great. Mm-hmm. Cast iron is the next best thing, in my opinion. And copper is the best thing to use for the very final bit of sugaring off because it's a very even heat. Copper conducts the heat really well. Have a couple of coals under it, and you can really get it going hot without burning. The biggest risk we have at this point is burning the syrup before it gets to the sugar stage. Right. And you make this tar that you cannot taste and it's not consumable yeah it's really really nasty so you got to be very careful and be on your game the whole time from syrup to sugar the beauty of sugar unlike syrup is as you're saying we didn't have glass bottles with corks in them we didn't have you know mason jars or plastic jugs we had baskets we had birch bark baskets macaque we had elm bark baskets we had clay pots but you wouldn't want to waste a clay pot by filling it all with just sugar you want to use that for cooking so you would make sugar cones and these cones yes you'd make a birch bark cone make a basswood string stick it down into the the neck of that cone and it would make a stopper with a big knot in it and when you pour the sugar that sugar kind of welds onto that knot and it stays and sticks to that cone like a wick in a candle exactly and you flip it over and you got a carrying handle you could carry you could make those exactly one pound and have 50 pounds of sugar on one stick you're walking back into town with the other benefit of going to sugar is it's a lot more stable because syrup wants to become crystals. It wants to become sugar. Yeah, over time. So if, if you don't, if you have a crack in your glass or the cork isn't perfect, it's going to turn to sugar anyways. You might as well just make it into sugar. And we can go to the point of saying if we have just baskets full of syrup sitting around, you're going to have bugs in it. You're going to have dust in it. You're going to have right. ash in it. You're going to have twigs. You're going to get your hair in there, my nose hairs and stuff, boogers from the babies. <laughs> All that gets in there. And then what happens if someone bumps into it? 
topples over, syrup goes into the ground. Yeah. You topple a basket of sugar, what do you do? You rake the sugar back in. Yeah, blow the dirt <laughs> out of it. Not a big you're problem. Ready, you're good to go. And so sugar is more stable, both shelf-stable-wise, but also stable in your lifestyle. Right. So we, we are very big on maple sugar. And so even though we make a lot of sap here and we boil a lot of sap here, I would say about 80% of what we gather in my sugar bush here goes to sugar sure. because that's what we prefer. And these, these cones of, um, of sugar, mm -hmm. they, they could be traded, I'm oh, definitely. definitely to the definitely. Europeans. Um, and then hung in their shelters, yeah, in longhouses, yep. wigwams, yep. whatever and shelter they were living in. Even on the trail, because the cone is birch bark, you have them hung from a tree branch outside of your little hunter's lodge you make. Sheds water. Sheds water. Mice can't get into it easily either. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a perfect system. Why make glass and why make plastic when you can just use birch bark? Exactly. Wonderful material. So we're down to the fun part now. We're, mm. we're, it's all culminating here into this tasty treat. The sweetest moment. We've got a few more tools you're going to talk about here yeah. in the process. So we were talking about we can boil a sugar in a clay pot or we can pour it into molds like the, the sugar cones. You can also just carve molds into basswood or poplar and just break the, uh, the mold afterwards and have these candies. That's what modern can, uh, maple candy is, just maple sugar in a cake form. Mm -hmm. The other option is if we want to have granulated sugar. We want to have sugar that we can add to baking, uh, to baking or for roasting or for making like a dry rub for a piece of porcupine or something. You can actually granulate the sugar. You can granulate it in the clay pot. You can granulate it in a cauldron if you keep it cool. The best way that I've come across is what's uh, frequently done amongst the Potawatomi or Potawatomi, as well as the Mississauga, my people, and other Anishinaabe communities, and that's using troughs. This is a poplar log that we squared off carved out and then we hollowed it and shaped it into this form with a crooked knife and an adze uh, to get into this shape. And this is a sugaring paddle. This is a very small one, but this is a good one for about this size. If you're doing a big batch of sugar, you'd actually be able to just hollow out a big log that's on the ground and then you have like a big canoe paddle sized mm -hmm. paddle to do it with. But this is a good portable when we're just working in the sugar bush kind of mm -hmm. thing. And what we do is just pour the maple sugar in and we start to move it around with the paddle. And as we move it, the beauty of using a big wooden trough is A, it's not hot, so you're not going to burn your sugar. B, it's going to keep it hot though because it's insulating. Mm -hmm. C, it is porous, so it's going to absorb any excess water that might be in there. And D, Perfect. no matter how well you carve these, it's going to be kind of rough. So as we start to granulate, it's actually going to Perfect. act like a grater. Agitating it. Exactly. So these are, in my opinion, the best way to make granulated maple sugar. There's a lot of other ways, and I've done it at home in just a steel bowl or a ceramic bowl, and it works just fine. But this is my favorite way to do it, is using an actual trough. And we actually have um, countertop size ones that we use at home. So this is a smaller one that we just use at home mm -hmm. on the countertop. You know, the amazing part about that, the, probably the best of all the pros there is the fact that it absorbs water. Mm-hmm. Like that, so you're getting your pure stuff right yeah. worked out. It's yeah. taking that stuff you don't want out. It's such an easy way to do it. It can take anywhere, once you pour the sugar, depending, and there's a lot of variables. Like if you have a candy thermometer and you have your hydrometer, hygrometer with you, yeah, you can, you, we're at the candying stage now, pour, pour, pour. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that in the old days. You had your senses. So we'll pay attention to the sight, how the sugar is bubbling, how the syrup is bubbling. Mm -hmm. Is there any streaks of brownie that look like caramel? Uh, we're going to listen to the sound of it. Is it bubbling? Is it boiling? But we're also going to listen to the sound of when we're stirring. Does it sound like uh, liquid rushing around, or does it sound more like it's being dragged around like snow? We're going to feel with our with our sugaring paddle or our stir stick, how does it feel? Does it feel thick? Does it feel runny? 
we're going to smell this caramel start to come out. So all of our senses, of course, taste afterwards. You know it's done because it tastes good. I'll do that part. For sure. Yeah, you can, okay, you can take I'll care of that. that. I'll part. take care of the other four senses. So how do you think we're doing over there with the sugar? We're there? getting pretty close. I would say we're probably about five minutes away. Away we go. Oh, yeah. We're right there. See how clean the bottom of the pot is? There's barely any in there. I'm just going to use like a spatula real quick. Take out anything that might be burning. It's a little runny still, but I'm fine with that. We'll just keep stirring until it becomes sugar. And even drag it up onto that ramp and kind of let it run down and cool and dry. Ever smell exquisite? Yep. This one's a little runny. We may only just get to maple butter, but if we keep moving it, it'll eventually become sugar. It all just comes down to how much we can get it to evaporate. You can actually see the sugars coming out of it, eh? Mm hmm. Granular stuff. And so we just take breaks once in a while, let it cool for a bit. There's no real rush. Uh, again, this could take up to 20 minutes, depending on how much water is left inside that sugar. When we do this with molds, we'll just have all the, the birch bark cones laid out, and we'll just pour them all and leave it for the day, and get back. Smear it out, and then break it up again. Similar to this consistency, a little bit runnier, and then you just leave it and leave it and leave it and for it, like a whole day. And it dries out. Yeah, firms up. It, it's kind of like spruce gum in that sense. Like you'll know when you see a glassy, glossy surface on that it's done. There would have been a lot more in here if we hadn't kept eating on it. That's so good. That's yeah, again. It's about a forty. It's about forty to one of sap to syrup, and then from there, let's say we have a liter of syrup, you'll get about half a liter to three quarters of a liter of sugar, depending on what the water volume was. And so this is we've eaten about a quarter of that. So let's say we have about a half a about two cups of sugar here, give or take. Once we get this all granulated, so you can see at this point is basically what we call. We we'll often call this because it's still so watery. We'll often call this maple butter. As you can see, it's almost like peanut butter. It is, yeah. And people will just use this as is. They'll they'll put this into a jar and they'll use this to make cakes and icings and everything else. I don't think there's going to be enough left <laughs> to, to, to add to your tea. <laughs> we'll have to pour some hot water in the trough and wash it out and use that. Mm. It's so good. Yeah. Right now, it reminds me of like a cookie dough in consistency and taste. It is, yeah. Very much like cookie dough. You can see why I don't lose weight out here. Mm 
trees are very special. They make up a sugar bush, a place in the woods that is just right for the making of maple syrup, maple candy, and maple sugar. In the Native American language of Ojibwe, the maple tree is sacred. It's called Ininatig, the man tree. Very many years ago, no one knew that syrup could be made from maple trees. But one year, in the late spring, the Indian people were hungry. They had no food left after the long winter. But the man tree spoke and told them about the secrets of maple syrup. The tradition of sugar bush still continues among Native Americans all across Minnesota. Porky White, an Ojibwe elder, has been carrying on the tradition for over 60 years. He was told how the man tree spoke long ago. But how the man looked out on the lake and his food were running out, turned around towards his back and heard a voice behind him. And he said, what he said at first is what we're going to do. We're slowly running out of uh, food. And, uh, and he heard a voice behind that said, I will, I will give you the nourishment until spring, till everything is, that'll carry you through. He looked back, what he only saw was maple trees. And then he looked back out towards the lake again and said, uh, what voice is that I heard? And the trees said, turn around. And they said, I spoke to you. He said, tap me in the bottom. You'll see the water run up under me. You will catch that sap and you will drink that nourishment because that water, that sap water is sweet. And, uh, Give that to your children, but then you, what you will do is you will boil that sap, and that sap will turn into to maple syrup. Drink that and give you a lot of nourishment. And he said, then you will make, and then you will boil that syrup again, and you will make sugar out of it. It'll keep for years and years to go. So that is the beginning of the first uh, maple camp. Each March, when the snow still blankets the woods, and just as the first rays of springtime sun filter down, Porky begins to build his sugar bush near Maple Plain, Minnesota. He learned the craft from his mother many years ago. Now he wants to continue the tradition of teaching everyone to respect the spirit of the trees and show them how to make thick brown maple syrup, sweet maple candy, and maple sugar. It's one of our traditions is to keep this thing alive and keep going. It is the way that the Creator wanted us to do that, that sap water and is sacred to us Indian people. That maple sugar and maple syrup is real sacred to us Indians. So is the rice. Porky needs a lot of help to make his maple syrup. He taps over 150 trees and gathers hundreds of gallons of sap to make 50 gallons of syrup. An important part of the sugar bush is gathering and splitting wood for the long boiling process. Maddie Moose works with Porky. She too has made maple syrup and candy for many years. Last year we must have burned about 10 cords of wood out here. 
takes a lot of wood. Takes a lot of work. <laughs> Tapping the trees is the first step at Sugarbush. These days, it's done with a power drill and bright blue bags to hold the running sap instead of buckets. You take a little bark off there first, so you can drill it better. Like this here. And then, we and then we just drill in there. When the sun is shining, the days warm, and nights cool, the bags fill up quickly. Porky rides his tractor while others follow, emptying the bags into pails and the pails into barrels. When the barrels are full, they are stored near the fire, and some fresh sap is added to the boiling liquid. Up to 10 barrels of sap go into one batch of maple syrup. There is a lot of boiling, and waiting, and watching, and testing, and tasting. Bear is one of Porky's main helpers. He watches the boiling process. We're just, we're just boiling the sap right down, and um, Porky and Maddie show me how to test it, you know, so when it's ready, you know, and then comes in like big strips. When the syrup is almost ready, it's time to get out the jugs that hold the maple syrup. Finally, Porky comes to test the syrup and knows it's ready. The sacred maple tree has more to offer than maple syrup alone. Maple candy and maple sugar are made by boiling the syrup even more. Well, we saved some of this from our syrup. This is syrup right now. And we'll boil this down 
until it starts to uh, crystallize. Just before it crystallizes, we take it out. Well, it should take about an hour before this will start crystallizing. Mm -hmm. And then we, you have to be kind of fast to pour it into the candy dishes, and, and then it'll set. The final process is making brown, tasty maple sugar, which can be stored for use years later. The uh, sugar's really good. It, it's like turns you gold color like it's, it's, it tastes a lot better than that commercial brown. It's uh, got more flavor to it, maple flavor to it. You sprinkle that maple on your food, cereal, hams, and beans, and all this stuff that really makes that taste come out, even with it in your cooking and stuff like that. really brings out the flavor. The syrup is slowly boiled until it begins to crystallize. Then it's poured quickly into a trough and worked back and forth until it becomes fine sugar. Each year, Porky returns to the sugar bush just as he has for 60 years and joins with the spirit of Inanatig, the man tree. These trees that are alive have a spirit in them. And when you cut them, any of those trees, they bleed. So these trees want to live too. As we have uh, very special uh, respect for the trees. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend.